Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This week, I have a conversation with a founder who's been in the MicroConf community for several years. She actually attended her first MicroConf in 2019 on one of our scholarships. And by that time, she had been building a SaaS business. It's a two-sided marketplace with a subscription component, and it's for RVers. She'd been building that business with her mom for seven years by then, received an offer to sell it. It was a so-so offer. She had come to the conclusion she was going to sell it, came to MicroConf, and got advice that literally changed the course of her and her mother's life. It's a great story of an entrepreneur who persevered for really nine years before selling her business and changed the course of her and her mother's life in the process. This is entrepreneurship, right? This is why we talk about this every week on Startups for the Rest of Us. This show is for ambitious startup founders who want freedom and purpose and relationships and want to change the course of their life through starting their own companies. And with that, let's dive into our conversation. Anna Mast, welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. Absolutely. So today we're going to be talking about Boondockers Welcome. It's at boondockerswelcome.com and how you and your mom started it and grew it over the course of nine years and then sold it for a life-changing amount of money. I I want to start with two questions. The first is, what is a boondocker? So in the RVing world, a boondocker is usually somebody who camps without hookups. So, you know, camping in the boondocks and the boonies, but more often than not, it actually ends up being like in somebody's driveway or in a Walmart parking lot or much less glamorous than actually in the backcountry boonies. But that is, that is what boondocker means in the RV industry. And it's a long domain name and really would be would only be known by someone in the space, right? Because I had seen you in MicroConf Connect, I'd seen the the URL and stuff, and I, I never had any idea what it did because I never, you know, I hadn't visited the site until you and I really, you know, connected deeper. But would you feel like that was a a benefit that it is so niche specific? It's kind of like saying build my MRR, you know, everyone in SAS knows that, that is and no one outside knows that. Uh, I wouldn't say that the the term boondocker had a great amount of benefit to us in that respect. On the list of things I would change, maybe a shorter domain name would have been up in the top of the list. But uh, we definitely did manage to build a brand. And and yeah, to most RVers, they would have known what a boondocker was. And it became synonymous with staying on people's property. So that was pretty cool. And you, you and your mom sold Boondockers Welcome earlier this year, and it, you know, as you you emailed me and you and I chatted, it definitely. Uh, I think the exact phrase used in the email was, "It was in the space of the we'd be crazy to say no variety in terms of the the multiple." Do you remember the moment when the deal closed and you were looking at it? Did you look at a bank account? Were you refreshing like I was the the day we sold Drip, or what was that like for you? Well, actually, the funny story is that um, the money got lost for a couple of days. Oh, <laughs> so my was, gosh. There was a couple of days where, you know, my lawyer was on the phone because it was going into her trust account. And so she was actually on the phone with the bank trying to figure out where the money was. And it was a bit of a kerfuffle. So our, our close date actually got pushed out by a couple of days because of that. So when the money finally did show up in the account, there was a combination of relief with, you know, just shock and, and happiness. But relief that money had not just disappeared. <laughs> That's terrible. Because I remember how stressful, you know, any type of, of acquisition is really from either side, but more from selling in my experience. 
And I cannot imagine not knowing where the money was. Yeah, I think that some lucky person actually opened up their bank account and saw the money in there and honestly came back to their their bank and said, "Um, this is not my money. And that's how we found it. Wow, that's terrible. (laughs) Nobody's fault. I mean, I'm sure there was just, you know, a number, a digit got switched or something somewhere in there, but... That's unusual. That's I haven't heard that before happening with an acquisition of, of a large sum of money getting sent to another, the wrong account in essence. Wow. So there, there's a big chunk of, of stuff I want to cover around how MicroConf played a role and how the MicroConf scholarship program played a role in, um, in kind of shifting some of your thinking in 2019. It made this all possible. But I want to roll back for now and start at the beginning of you starting Boondockers Welcome with your co-founder, your semi-retired mom, who was a former waitress. She had become an RVer and she had built herself a bit of an audience and a name in the RV space, having written a couple ebooks for RVers. So talk to me about how that unfolds. Um, I haven't personally started a business with my relatives, much less, you know, my mother. So I'm curious, was this an idea that came from her? Did you bring the idea to her? How did all that get started? So... I was actually on maternity leave uh, with my eldest son and my mother approached me. She had, like you said, you know, these successful travel guides had a bit of an audience and she had this idea for what she called sort of a driveway surfing community like couch surfing, but for RVers. Apparently it's quite common in the RVing industry for people to say, oh, you should just come park at my place anytime you're in town. RVers are really easy guests. They bring their own bathroom. They bring their own bed sheets. You don't have to, you know, worry about what your house looks like. And so she said, I'm thinking about building this. I was going to see if I could contract somebody to develop it for me. Would you help me find someone? And I kind of stepped back and said, whoa, 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 mom, have you vetted this idea? Do you really know it's going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars? to get somebody to build this. I was on maternity leave. I didn't really have, you know, a lot. We're in uh, Canada where we have 12 months of paid maternity leave. So I, uh, I mean, not incredibly well paid, but better than nothing paid. So I was, you know, happy to take some time and, and she came and spent time with her new grandson. And I started working on developing the website and Web development wasn't my background. I was a firmware engineer, so there was a big learning curve for me there just to sort of switch gears. But that's how it all started as a bit of a side project. And we developed it slowly. And it wasn't until my second child was born that we actually ended up launching it. So that was the impetus. And I'm curious, as a firmware engineer building maybe one of your first web apps in 2012, what what tech stack did you use? (laughs) <laughs> uh, we end, I ended up using um, just a Drupal CMS with a bunch of modules and a little bit of custom PHP code stuck in there. Sort of, I had some familiarity with PHP and, you know, it was a pretty flexible CMS in general. And so I was able to, to you know, wedge in the payments and the, the pieces that we needed to make it work. And that's what we started with. In retrospect, do you think that was a good decision? It was probably a good decision in the minimal viable product sense in that it, you know, didn't require a whole lot of custom work to be done. It it certainly did not give me the flexibility that I needed to, to really develop the platform to, you know, something larger. But from a, I mean, it took a long time, so I wouldn't call it a minimum viable product in that sense. But, you know, on, on the side, it, it was a minimum viable product in the sense that it, it did what it needed to do to see if if it was an idea that was going to fly. 
Right. That's, I think, the important point is because I've built apps, quote unquote, on, I mean, this is all before no code, right? Otherwise, I'd, these days I would probably use no code for something like this, but I built them on Drupal and WordPress. And usually it's to get something out really quick. And then if it actually works, it's got to rewrite it. There's no way I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with the, con, you know, the constraints and the, and the confines of, a, of an ecosystem like that. And so you launched in 2012, right? And was it you know, hockey stick, rocket ship growth? Or what, what did you experience? Oh, goodness, no. I mean, I remember we launched, you know, to my mother's newsletter list. She had, you know, several, several hundred people who had bought her guides and those first people seeded our host base, right? They were our first 200 hosts. And we, we, you know, they signed up quite readily at that point. It was, you know, lifetime free if you sign up as an initial host. I mean, we're talking about a, essentially a two-sided marketplace, right? <laughs> the difficulty of building a two-sided marketplace is well known and talked about often on the show. So I'm sure that most of our, our listeners are, are going, oh gosh, how did she ever make this work? That was <laughs> exactly. insane. But yes, we had the unfair advantage of having a really decent seed list. And we got our first couple hundred hosts in that first month, uh, or sorry, first few months. And then we turned on the, okay, from now on, if you want to join, you have to pay uh, switch. And I remember kind of sitting there waiting to see if anybody would buy. And, you know, within a week, we had one person. And, you know, then it was kind of like one person every week for a little while. And yeah, it was very slow. And how did how did the pricing work at that point? And what was the model? Was it a subscription model or one-time fee? And were you charging the hosts or the RVers? Or am I using the right terms there? The hosts or the yeah, the boondockers? Yeah. So yeah. the boondockers. So at that time, we started. Our assumption was that anybody who wanted to be a guest would probably, or sorry, that wanted to be a host was probably an RVer as well, and would also want to be a guest. So we did, after those initial 200 free lifetime members, we turned on pricing for everybody. So it's, you got a discount if you signed up as a host, but we just assumed that everybody wanted to be a guest. So, you know, it's going to cost you, I think it was 25 bucks a year. So a subscription, but not even a automatically renewing subscription. So, you know, we were certainly not, uh, there was lots of low hanging fruit there. But uh, yeah, 25 bucks a year, 20 bucks a year if you were a host. That's crazy low. I, I, yeah, I marvel at, at everything you've done. Everything I'm about to say, you've already heard me say in the past. Building a two-sided marketplace, really hard. Don't like do lifetime grandfathering to your, or, you know, a first two, 300. Those are the people that are most interested in using it. Maybe give them a free year, maybe give them whatever, a free amount of time, but eventually, you know, they'll convert in. Although building a two-sided marketplace is a little different because you really do need those folks to, to dig in. And then lastly, 20 or $25 for a year is like, ouch. Well, you're selling to consumers too, right? Which is a yeah. very different game. They're so price sensitive and RVers in general, you're, you're, Essentially, we're marketing to people who are too cheap to stay in a campground for a night. So right. you're 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 really <laughs> kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel to some degree on on pricing. But I mean, they're they're lovely people, and you know, as it grew and and matured, it turned out that you know the the saving twenty five bucks or fifty bucks a night on a campground was really not the the value proposition that people actually ended up buying for. What was it? It ended up being community. It was most of the hosts, most of the hosts did end up being RVers themselves, but a lot of them were former RVers, people that couldn't RV anymore, and people who ended up going to the effort to put in, you know, a couple of 
parking pads for Boondockers welcome guests on their property so that they could have people come and, you know, share their travel stories. And the same on the, the guest side, we had families who were traveling and, and it was just somewhere different to stop. You meet people on the road, people who know the area, people who are willing to, you know, show you around, people who give you eggs from their, you know, chickens in their backyard. It, it, it really ended up being much more about community than, you know, an alternative to spending the night in the Walmart parking lot. Right. And that's often what happens is especially, well, th- there's a lot of businesses that we think it's about saving money and there's often some other thing. It's about saving time or efficiency or hassle, or in this case, community, you know, which maybe, maybe you wouldn't have predicted from the start. So by the end then, if we flash forward to 2021, what, I'm curious what your pricing was like then, if it was still an annual subscription, you know, if you were still charging both sides, if the pricing was higher than, than $25 a year. So we did change our business model in late 2017 to allow hosts to sign up for free. Did not include a guest subscription, though. Uh, If hosts wanted to also be guests, they had to purchase a guest subscription, but they got a 50% discount on that. And by the time we sold in 2021, and still right now, our annual price is $50 a year. So up from the $25 a year, but still, uh, still a good deal. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense to charge guests because they're getting the benefit, right? Whereas hosts, I know they get the community side of it, but they don't get paid, no. right? But no, yeah, I mean, they it don't. truly is a free thing. It truly is. And I mean, we wouldn't have existed without the generosity of our hosts. So yeah, charging our hosts in the end definitely was not the right plan. Right. Well, it was that early assumption that every host will also want to be a guest, right? And you often get in that mindset of, of something. I mean, I've written code where I've coupled two classes or made one class instead of, you know, having it be a, I don't know, a more generic representation. And that's, it's easy to do. And, and then you just got to undo it, undo it later. So it, it sounds like, so you launched in 2012 and you do get one side of that marketplace, the hosts, in place enough because your mom has the audience. And then it's growing onesie, twosie payments uh, a week or every week or two. So truly a like slow growth bootstrap business. When did that change? Because I get the, I get the feeling there's an inflection point here that happened where growth picked up, revenue started accelerating. And I'm curious what came together to make that happen. Yeah. So, I mean, it was sort of just slow growth. It, you know, got picked up by several influencers in the space sort of slowly over time. But I think the big inflection point was in 2017 when I rewrote the tech stack, changed the business model. And honestly, that was when my my youngest kids started school. So I had a lot more time on my hands and I was able to really focus on, you know, all the things that I knew we were supposed to be doing, but we weren't. We didn't even have a blog. We had no content marketing. We, you know, sent out newsletters, but only to our existing members. We didn't have a, you know, newsletter sign up on the homepage, like all those things that you're supposed to do. And we hadn't done them. And we managed to, you know, I think by the time in 2017, when I rewrote the stack, we had about $30,000 in ARR. So, I mean, it's a pretty high churn industry, so that's not, you know, not a guarantee, but uh, it was respectable for, you know, what was essentially just a maybe six hours a week while my kids were in preschool or, you know, before I, uh, in evenings when I still had a day job sort of thing. That makes sense. And so you're fi- so at that point, you're five years into this business and it's doing 30K a year. But it sounds like you were fine with that, that, it, that you thought of it as a, it was like a side project. 
Absolutely. I mean, it was something I dreamed of quitting my day job for. And I mean, I did quit my day job before 2017 for family reasons. Just, you know, my husband was traveling a lot and we needed some life balance. But, um, but you know, it's not like two young kids at home who aren't in school yet isn't pretty much a full-time job. So it was just, it was a side project. And I treated it as such until I found the time to actually double down. And I am also curious about when you reworked it, you now have more web experience, I'm assuming. What, what tech stack did you use then in 2017? Uh, we have a Django backend, obviously Python Django uh, running on Nginx and FreeBSD as our operating system. I happen to have, my husband is a uh, big wig in the FreeBSD world, so I have a a good guy on board to help me with any of those OS server level details. But yeah, Django was, I didn't even know Python really before I picked that, but it, incredibly flexible, great from a, just the ability to implement anything I wanted after coming from, you know, trying to build on top of a Drupal CMS. It was a huge step up. Right. And do you think in that early, it sounds like your growth started moving a little more at that point because you did put things in place, like you said, you know, content marketing and other, other things that we would just say, well, most bootstrappers should be doing this. Do you think if you had done that earlier, if you had had the time, do you feel like growth would have been faster in those first five years? Uh, maybe. I think the business model change was really imperative. I think we ended up losing hosts quite frequently because they stopped being guests. And when we made that change, we were able to, you know, stop stagnating on our host count and our, our, our number of hosts just really started to, to skyrocket. And I think at that point we had about 800 hosts and we had sort of been oscillating around that for a couple of years. And today we have over 3,000, so. And that's the hard part. It's the hard part of pricing period is, is just you don't know, what do I feature gate? What is my uh, value metric often? And a, a two-sided marketplace adds even more complexity to that is who do I charge and for what, right? Who's getting value out of it? And so I can imagine that took you a little while to figure out. So that your, your business is, is growing well. And I want to get to the kind of microconf part of the story right now, but I'm curious, did you, how'd you hear about microconf? Were you a listener to this podcast? Yes, I I can't remember when I started listening to Startups for the Rest of Us, but, you know, I'm pretty sure I was still working my day job and listening to it on and off. And I knew that that was what I wanted, but I wasn't sure that the business I had was going to be the business to get me there. You guys do end up focusing quite a bit on like B2B SaaS and we were B2C and not so much SaaS. So, you know, two-sided marketplace, it just, it didn't necessarily feel like I was a fit and that I was I was able to put into place all of the suggestions that you made because there were so many differences. And so I had a lot of, you know, misgivings about whether or not I was really a fit for the microcon community. Well, and is that because of the B2C and two-sided marketplace aspect of it? Uh, a little bit, but also just because I was doing it, you know, on the side when my kids were in preschool and, you know, they... they I don't want to generalize what women think, but I know that I had difficulty with calling myself an entrepreneur when I spend my days with stay-at-home moms. And it's a difficult uh, separation to make. 
And I think that's like for anyone listening, if you do not fit the exact, I mean, that's one of the reasons we started this podcast is Mike and I didn't fit into the prototypical YC founder. We weren't the Silicon Valley person who could move to, uh, you know, the 24 year old who could move there. I was already married with a kid and a mortgage. And I didn't want to do the crazy non-work-life balance, you know, Silicon Valley 90-hour week game. And so we started the podcast because it's for the rest of us. And we truly mean for the rest of us. Like, it, I wish maybe I had said this five or six years ago, you know, and you could have heard it at that point. But like one of the things I believe so strongly about bootstrapping is that it is this more inclusive or just... There's so much about it being, is it a true meritocracy maybe? Because you just went off and built a website and you built revenue and no one cared. No one asked if you were a man or a woman or if you were a person of color or not. You just, you did it. And there are so many folks, I think that if you had gone to Silicon Valley to try to raise money, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I think it would have been perhaps hard for you. I mean, we've heard the the stories of the, you know, the, the gender gap there. And I, there's just all kinds of stuff that goes on with venture. And I'm not trying to throw venture under the bus in, in particular, but I, I do believe so heartily in this community, the microconf community, startups, the rest of us, and even just the worldwide community of bootstrappers that I do think there is so much more leeway for folks to just go and get it done because it's about shipping a business and and building a real business for real customers to pay you real money versus anything else. You're not putting on a show and you're not trying to convince people or get permission from anyone to start a business. You're just doing what you did, which was to hack together Drupal, you know, with your mom as basically an advisor, subject matter expert and and to ship software. Yeah. And honestly, at the end of the day, there was nothing about, you know, startups for the rest of us or microconf that put me off, but there's always that representation piece, right? It's like, until you hear the story of somebody who you feel like they also did this while their, you know, baby was napping on their lap and, and, or, you know, while their kid was in preschool and they were around the corner in the library trying to hack together Drupal. Until you feel that and hear it from somebody else, you're always sort of questioning whether you fit in. Absolutely. I should have talked more about that. It's it's such a trip. My first child was born in 2006 and the second one in 2010. And we started this podcast in 2010. And I used to record it with Mike while he was napping. And I don't know that I, I don't know why I didn't mention that. It just, I never did, but I was in the same boat as you in those early days when I acquired Hittail. Our kid was, you know, a second was less than a year old and I was still watching him almost full time. See, that's, that's really cool. And I did not know that, that, and, and I'm sure that that's true for a lot of bootstrap founders who quit their day job. And it's like, well, somebody has got to put, you know, food on the table and it ends up being the wife and, and the husband, you know, in that case, if this is a man we're talking about, it ends up being that stay at home caregiver, but it just doesn't get discussed, I think as much. And so, you know, those of us who are female and, and feel like, you know, that is often a role that we're wedged into don't necessarily relate to that if we don't hear that from the men who are doing that. Yeah, I would agree. Again, I, I'm going to keep harping. I mean, I believe bootstrapping and just start, starting companies is so life-changing, you know, building products. And one of the reasons that I kept diving into it was because we had young kids and I wanted, I wanted work that worked around my life life came first, you know, my family came first and what can I do? I didn't want a full-time job because then that means I'm somewhere nine to six or eight to five or whatever it is. And it sounds like, I think so many of us are doing it for that reason. Freedom, purpose and relationships, right? Absolutely. I wouldn't have quit my day job if, you know, my husband was traveling a lot and it was, you know, we needed that balance. And even though, 
Moondockers Welcome wasn't anywhere near close to bringing in the revenue to replace my full-time engineering salary. It, it was a decision that was easy to make at the end of the day. We did not need my salary and we needed balance. And so in 2019, you got a purchase offer and you actually, so you wrote me an email a, a couple months, it was about a, six or eight weeks ago and it was, it was about ultimate, the, ultimately the acquisition. And one piece of that I, I just want to read here. You said, in early 2019, I heard about the scholarships for underrepresented people for microconf, which I'd always wanted to attend, but had never been able to justify the cost and time away from my family. So I decided to apply. I was surprised and thrilled to find that I've been granted one. And I can say without hyperbole that receiving the scholarship changed my life. That has a lot of meaning to me. This is, you've heard me say this, but like there's a reason this podcast and microconf have gone on for 10 years and were essentially side project hobbies until a couple years ago. And it's because of sentences like that, right? It's like us finding other people and us all helping one another make progress on this journey. And so I want to hear, you know, when you say it changed your life, give folks some background about, you know, what was going on coming into microconf and then how microconf maybe changed your thinking around that. Yeah. So, I mean, I've already said that I wasn't sure that, you know, I was a fit for microconf based on, you know, how we had grown and and my business and my own personal sort of misgivings about my own skills. But I decided to apply for the scholarship and was accepted. At that time, we had actually been courted by another person in the RV space, they, you know, a a company that owns, you know, several blogs and forums that are, you know, well known in the RV space. And they had made us an offer. At that time, we had about $100,000 in ARR. And the offer was, you know, reasonable. We were still growing pretty well. So it was, you know, a 3.9x ish multiple. You know, we had our accountants sort of look over it and go, yeah, this is a good offer. We had not yet signed an LOI, but I, I applied to microconf for the scholarship thinking, well, this will be, if I do go, it will be an opportunity for me to learn what I will do with my next startup so that I can really do it the right way. And I went thinking we were going to sell. And I swear to you within the first hour like that very first night in the first, you know, mixer where we're, you know, all just standing around having drinks. I had a conversation with somebody and I'm I'm sad that I don't remember his name, but he referred me, he said, you should go read Before the Exit by the the Dynamite Circle guys. I can't whose names, I also forget. Dan Andrews and Ian, yep. That's it, yes. And just, it's like thought experiments about other things you might choose to do before you sell your company. And I went after that, even I had lots of other great conversations, but I went back to my hotel room that night and I, I think it was $4 on Amazon for this. And it's a short book, right? It's just thought experience. I read the whole thing before I went to sleep and I'm on like East Coast time in Las Vegas. So it's like I'm up until all hours of the morning. And, and that was it. I was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Why am I going to sell this business? And then throughout the weekend, you know, I had more conversations with more people and they all just sort of said the same thing about, oh, that's really cool. And you've got traction. And a lot of people there were still struggling to find their first idea. And here I was with, you know, a business that had made $100,000 that year. And it's like, oh, maybe, maybe this is a business that is worth pursuing and continuing. 
And so that was how MicroConf changed my life. I did not sell my company. <laughs> I came home and I said to my mom, I'm like, nope, we're not going to sell. We're, and I mean, part of the, the reason we were talking about selling was she was looking to retire. She's, you know, in her late 60s by now. And, you know, we're like, okay, we're going to figure something out. Either I buy you out or I take a salary or something. And we're just going to keep going. And that was how MicroConf changed my life. That's a heck of a story. It's usually an exit and actually selling that changes our life, which ultimately did happen. But in this case, it was not selling, not selling too early because the, what's the end of the story? You kept growing it and then... The end of the story is that I kept growing and then COVID happened and then RVing went crazy and then I sold it. <laughs> yep. And it's, it, you could call it luck. You can call it serendipity. But honestly, something happened in that, at that event, something happened in your hotel room that night with, with before the exit that maybe was meant to be, or maybe it was just really fortuitous timing. And the, the sentence in your, your email to me is, two year, and now two years after that previous offer, we received a strategic offer from a venture-backed company in the space that was of the, quote, we'd be crazy to say no variety. Life-changing money that I can clearly draw back to a life-changing moment when I was offered the scholarship to MicroConf and accepted it. It just warms my heart. I mean, everybody's version of life-changing money is going to be different, obviously, but I mean, for someone who was planning to really quit my day job just so I could have some work-life balance and my mother who, you know, was a waitress and, you know, doesn't have a lot of retirement savings put away and now I don't have to worry about that. We ended up both staying on as full 50% owners and I took a salary. So she gets half of our acquisition money. And it's definitely a special kind of exit to know that not only are you taken care of, but you've helped take care of your, your family as well. I was going to ask you how that how that part panned out in terms of your mom because I was imagining as a you know as a waitress most of her career she didn't have much retirement and so that's pretty incredible to think like you said it's like a double win because you get the money and so does she wow well c- congratulations I mean like I I feel great for the story look whether honestly whether this podcast or microconf had been involved or not this is still a great story it's just a great story of like building something to fill a need and and getting that MVP out, you know, and having the pricing not quite right. You had a little bit of an edge because you, you know, you're a developer and your mom is a subject matter expert with a little bit of a of an audience in the space, allowed you to get that leg up. And you made some mistakes along the way with structure and pricing and this and that, but slow growth and you kept doing it. And it's that, what is it? It's the nine year to overnight success thing, right? Exactly. Very good. Thanks so much for joining me on the show and telling the story. I, I feel like, you know, anyone listening to this can can take away just the really the life-changing nature of, um, of bootstrapping startups. And, you know, I always say on the show, like, think in terms of, of months or years, not weeks, right? Or think in terms of years, not week, or not months is what I say, because your story is one of those. It's, the, it's a realistic depiction of what most of us go through when we bootstrap. Us bootstrapping is not the Facebook story. You know, it's not the, even the story of what, you know, a convert kit or a bear metrics when you look at it, it's just growing tens of thousands of dollars. It's like, that does happen. That's the silly. Cinderella story version of it, but what do most of us experience? And, and I feel like, you know, your story is, is a lot of that. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to, to have had the opportunity to be here and share the story and to have obviously been able to attribute so much of that back to the microconf and the startups for the rest of us community. And if folks want to keep up with you, um, where, where could they find you online? 
I am on Twitter at schoolgirl, spelled uh, what I call the metric spelling, S-K-U-L-E, girl. Excellent. And MicroConf Connect, of course. You're an active participant. That's a yes, free yes. community that, you know, it's a, a Slack room with, I don't know, I think we're around 2,200 participants now. That's where you and I, I think, really, really connected. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on the show, Anna. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. Thanks again to Anna Mast for coming on the show. Hope you enjoyed it this week. If you and I are not connected on Twitter, look me up. I'm at Rob Walling. I hope this week's episode provided you with some inspiration or motivation to keep going, to keep shipping, to make that next sale. And I'll be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning.